Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the penultimate class uh, on Dune. Um, and uh, in just a minute, I'm going to officially announce what our next class is going to be, because the election is official, uh, as, uh, as I mentioned I would last week. But first, uh, I, I want to begin where it is most appropriate to, to begin, and that is with me expressing my excitement and gratitude uh, for the wonderful response we've had to our fundraiser. We, of course, launched a couple weeks ago now our fundraiser for next year's Mythgard Academy. Um, you know, we've been doing our free classes this, you know, we're coming up here on the end of our first cycle. And, uh, uh, you know, we, so we've been doing these free classes and posting them live, and we wanted them, to, you know, we wanted to be able to continue those for next year. We posted our initial goal of $14,000 for the year, um, you know, divided between one-time pledges and, uh, and monthly subscriptions over the course of this coming year. And, uh, you know, as we needed $14,000 just to pretty much keep the lights on, be able to pay all the, the bills that we have associated with this. Um, and, you know, I mentioned last week already we were nearly to that goal. Um, and uh, we've now officially exceeded our goal. Uh, um, so that is, uh, I, I, am, I, am, I am really, really excited about this. Um, I mentioned last week that I, you know, wanted to talk about a stretch goal, um, that if we're able to raise more than this, we'll, we'll be able to do something I've been wanting to do for a really long time, which is not only offer you classes myself, for which I volunteer my time, but to be able to bring in guest lecturers, uh, to be able to do, you know, extra bonus classes on really fun topics, you know, beyond just sort of the discussion of the books that, that uh, we're doing here. So we're going to be able to have a sort of a public lecture series where we'll be able to bring in great scholars, great writers, uh, to be able to give talks on various topics uh, and be able to, to give those away also for free to sort of supplement the Mythgard Academy program. Um, and uh, the way that's going to work, uh, you know, with our fundraiser, um, we can afford to do, to bring in a new lecturer and do a new event uh, for every $2,000, every extra $2,000 that we raise um, up through, you know, I think uh, scheduling these always is, uh, uh, takes a bit of administrative work uh, to do. Um, so I'm going to, my, my plan, my goal is going to be able to do six of those, that is one every other month um, over the course of this whole next year. So if we can raise an additional $12,000, um, then we should be able to get, then we'll be able to get to that goal. Um, we're already uh, almost a third of the way there. Um, as of now, we're just shy of 18000 I think, in total pledges. Um, so that's been, that's been really great. But I also want to take a moment to kind of, sort of point to the bigger point um, and to sort of share the, the bigger vision. I mean, of course, there are really two things, both sort of the, the more immediate and, in a sense, the sort of smaller-term thing that we're doing through the Mythgard Academy, and then there's the bigger thing um, that we as an institution are doing, of which the Mythgard Academy is only one piece. The smaller piece, of course, um, is... Uh, for uh, is making these free classes available. This is something I've wanted to do for a really long time. I have so much enjoyed not only just the experience of doing the class and interacting with you guys, and I feel like I've learned so much this past year. It's been really wonderful. I've never had the opportunity to do that kind of a study of, of Unfinished Tales and the Book of Lost Tales, and, um, and I learned so much about Ender's Game, and this has been a great trip through Dune. I've really loved everything that we've done. But it's not just that. It's not just wanting to do the classes. I am really excited about the fact that we are able finally to do this kinds of thing and make this stuff free. Um, as many of you know, you know, if you've known me or listened to my podcast for a while, you know that I really like to be able to give things away. Um, and this kind of, you know, opportunity to just provide to the public is something that makes me really happy to be able to do. Um, but 
as I say, the Mythgard Academy is only a small part of what we're trying to do at Sigmund University, which is you know which is the larger institution of which the Mythgard Academy is only is only one small piece. And what we're doing at Signum University, for those of you who don't know, for those of you who are sort of new and have only just kind of begun uh, following along with our with our free classes, um, I won't. I'll try not to preach too long about it because I can get going on this subject. But um, but just to kind of give you a, a little bit of a glimpse, um, at, Sign at Signum University, we're trying to do something genuinely disruptive. We're trying to build a university from scratch on a fundamentally new model. New model in some ways, pedagogically and educationally, but even more radical. Uh, on a new business model. Um, our goal is to be able to, to provide the opportunity for students, irrespective of geography, to be able to attend live interactive classes with the best teachers in the world at the lowest tuition possible, so that keeping our tuition so low that everybody can afford to put themselves through college without loans and to pay our, and at the same time that we are lowering our, our tuition as low as we possibly can to pay our faculty above scale um, rather than exploiting them like so many uh, uh, universities do. We have been true to this vision through some difficulty uh, for three years now. We've been running for over three years. We're in our 10th semester right now. Um, we have never had any funding. Um, we have merely um, uh, we have merely operated on the very small tuition that we charge um, with a relatively small student body. Um, and yet we've been able to offer operate and stay true to that vision for three years. Um, you know, things have been stretched uh, pretty tight uh, on a pretty thin shoe shoestring budget, still are, really. Um, and, you know, but we've been wanting not to compromise those principles, and so we've we've you know been getting along as best we could. We are now entering the home stretch for our certification process. Um, there are a lot of things coming down the pipe. This coming year is going to be a really exciting one at Signum University, um, as you know. We have, but, but that also means uh, completing the certification process will be awesome. You know, we've been doing everything that we can to. Uh, you know, to, to make sure that, you know, Sigma is completely above board and that we're meeting all of the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the legal standards that we need to meet along the way. Um, but in this next year, we're going to have a lot of unusual uh, fees coming our way from the certification bodies and things like that. So, um, uh, you know, in addition to our regular expenses. All of these things that, I mean, this is the big project, this is the big vision. I mean, you know, Mythgard Academy is already guaranteed for the coming year. We've now raised enough money that's definitely going to happen. Um, with, you know, the further help that people can give us, um, you know, during the course of the rest of this fundraiser, you know, we really want to be able to establish ourselves and put Sigmund mm -hmm. University in the position to make a real difference, not just, you know, for fantasy and science fiction fans through the Mythgard Academy, but for students all over the world. Um, and, and really, it's your support that's going to make this possible and enable us to, uh, to continue doing this. And yes, Kevin Morgan points out, we still have the Spacing Guild bribes to, 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 to think of. Absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, so that's, that's, and those are really only going up, as, uh, as of course, everybody always, uh, everybody always points out. Um, so I do hope that you'll consider giving to Sigmund University and Mythgard Academy to help, to help us kind of continue uh, to maintain our vision and to bring things forward to the next step um, and to be able to open things up. Um, 
And we have, of course, uh, as I think I mentioned before, because uh, I've been mentioning as often as I can because I'm really excited about it, we have finally uh, been granted official tax-exempt status by the IRS. So we're officially, for the federal government, a, a nonprofit, which means that all donations to Sigmund University are tax-deductible. Um, so that's a really cool and exciting thing. So um, if you, when you are, are looking for that, uh, uh, for that excellent uh, uh, tax shelter, uh, as you approach the end of the tax year, remember Signum University. Um, so anyway, uh, I just wanted to make sure that everybody, because you know, I, you know, we, here in the Mythgard Academy, you know, of course, I'm focused mostly on the books, and you know, and 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 even within the council, of course, we focus primarily on. You know what we're doing here with uh, you know fantasy and science fiction literature, and you know, and really sort of enjoying that as a community. And of course, that's one of the central things that we've always been about. But I did wanted to make sure that um, a lot of uh, you know that 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 those of you who are listening, you know, sort of know what's going on you know behind the scenes. And even if you're not uh, in our in our master's degree program, sort of involved with the sort of larger Signum University side of it, just to get a glimpse uh, sort of there of what's going on. And to know that you know, if we if we're able to raise more money, that's what that money is going to be able to go to to be able to support this vision um, for high quality, low cost, highly accessible uh, education, which is not uh, constructed on the on the, the the backs of academic wage slaves. And uh, uh, you know, so just to try to make a really an all around better academic, you know, to 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 create a new and different and better kind of academic environment. So. Um, uh, that's that's uh, what I wanted to start off with. Now I will make my announcement, though I think some of you have already heard it uh, uh, already. Let me see here a second. Oh, sorry. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, the winner of the election for our next book is Watership Down by Richard Adams. I'm so excited. I have been. Uh, I, I've you know I've been sometimes secretly, sometimes not so secretly, campaigning for Watership Down. Um, let me tell a personal story. Um, there were two books that were formative to my entire life, both of which I was handed by uh, a, a, a trusted relative when I was eight years old. It was in the same year I was handed both books. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia had been read to me by my parents when I was seven, and that was really sort of the moment that I consider sort of the sort of the birth of my literary experience. It was it was listening to the Chronicles of Narnia as read by my parents that um, that really sort of opened my eyes to story and and sort of you know the literary life that would follow. Um, when I was eight, right afterwards, um, I was given a story. A story I've recounted many times. I was given a copy of The Hobbit. Uh, by a cousin of mine who knew I had read the Chronicles of Narnia and thought if I liked that I'd probably also like this other thing. Um, so that was my introduction to Tolkien and I've been reading Tolkien ever since and uh, I've been reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings at least once a year every year of my life ever since then. In that same year uh, when I was eight I was also given a copy of Watership Down by my father and this was kind of a big deal because my father though he reads a lot of nonfiction, he's not a fiction guy he doesn't read a whole lot of fiction um, and but yet, Watership Down was given to me my, by my dad, um, who really loved that book. That book was really special to him. And so, you know, to me, I was like, "Whoa, this is like a work of fiction that my dad liked." Wow! Even at the age of eight, I, I, I thought it was a pretty big deal. Um, and I read it and loved it. And I have been reading Watership Down too every year of my life ever since. Um, so, uh, I am, I am, I am uh, pumped. 
to do to talk about Watership Down with you guys. Um, so uh, we will. I'll be announcing the schedule soon. We have this is the penultimate week of Dune, so we've got we're going to do we're going to finish up Dune next week. Um, we're going to take a short hiatus um, while, I, while I get myself together and make a plan and uh, and uh, and, and uh, put together a web page and all that kind of thing. Um, my guess it'll probably be a two week gap. I haven't even fully fully decided this yet. Um, probably two weeks, and then we'll start Watership Down after that. Um, so uh, anyway, I uh, I hope. That many I know that you know some of you are hardcore science fiction people, and a book about bunnies might not uh, might not seem seem uh, quite the same. Um, but I'm telling you, if you don't know Watership Down, it is just one of the most brilliant works of the 20th century. I mean, I just I I I I, I, I can't say enough about Watership Down. Um, and for those of you who have um, for those of you who have seen it, Nancy uh, Fosberg is talking about. Uh, having been permanently scarred by seeing the Watership Down movie as a kid, I, I, I totally sympathize. Um, the movie is... I quite dislike the movie, actually. Um, it... Uh, 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 yeah, anyway. We can talk about the movie, perhaps, if we need to, uh, during class. But I'm not going to focus on the film. And I trust, trust me, the book is better. Um, um, no, Ed, the movie is... Ed is defending the movie. It's not that bad. I mean, it's not it's not as bad as the Dune film, for instance. Um, <laughs> which which you'll notice I haven't squeezed in an enormous amount of time for. Um, but um, uh, but uh, 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 it's not that bad. Um, but uh, I, I, have, I, have, I have my grievances. Anyway, never mind. Don't worry about it. I'm excited to talk about Watership Down. Um, so <laughs> let's. Uh, so I say, you know, I plan on you know we'll, we'll be looking probably uh, something like the uh, the end of uh, of October uh, to begin it. So um, you will end. Uh, paid, I will uh, you know um, post as soon as I can uh, links to uh, to the web page for that. Um, Tom asks if we're moving back to Tuesdays. I think not, Tom. Uh, the main reason I shifted to Wednesdays is because the old Tuesday night slot now conflicts with one of our uh, our regular uh, Mythgard and Master's degree classes um, that's happening this semester. So I don't want to have that conflict. That conflict will still be ongoing um, at the beginning of the Watership Down class. Uh, and anyway, I think that uh, uh, Wednesdays um, are going to work better. It's, it's going to fit better in the rest of our schedule with what we're doing. So I think we're, we're going to stick with uh, with Wednesdays uh, for now, and, and and we'll see, you know, moving on from there how that goes. So it, the plan will still be Wednesday nights um, at the same time. All right. Well, let's talk about Dune because we still have plenty to talk about uh, about Dune. We're going to talk about the end. Okay. Like I'm not even going to pretend we're going to talk about the end of Dune today. I have like. There's a zero percent chance we're going to get through everything I want to talk about about the end of this book, and then be sitting around next week, you know, just sort of, uh, uh, you know, shooting from the hip about anything we want to talk about. So I'm not even going to pretend. Um, but it is. I, 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 I nevertheless have some ambitions uh, to get through some of the main things that I want to focus on about Paul. There's some tying up of of a sort of subplots and minor characters that I want to come back to uh, for next time. Um, and uh, Nancy asks, "Are we going to talk about the appendices?" I would love to talk about the appendices, but again, we should we should do that uh, next time. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm definitely definitely not going to be able to get to the appendices this time. Um, 
especially since, uh, doing myself no favors, I didn't finish last time either, so we're going to go back a little bit, um, uh, which actually provides the perfect launching off point for where I want to start this week. And I want to go back and look at, in book three, from the beginning of book three, um, how, where we see Paul, um, the way that people talk about Paul sort of taking on, consciously taking on the religious mantle um, of prophet. Uh, remember, that's the title of book three, right? The prophet. Um, so um, let's um, let's let's look at that first. Jessica, Jessica, she's concerned, right? Jessica was fearful of the religious relationship between himself and the Fremen. Paul knew she didn't like the fact that that people of both Seach and Graben referred to Moadib as him, and she went questioning among the tribes, sending out her Sayadina spies collecting their answers and brooding on them. She had quoted a Bene Gesserit proverb to him, when religion and politics travel in the same cart, the riders believe nothing can stand in their way. Their movement becomes headlong, faster and faster and faster. They put aside all thought of obstacles and forget that a precipice does not show itself to the man in a blind rush until it's too late. So, what do we see here? Notice the turnaround that Jessica has uh, uh, has experienced, right? Remember, she was the one who was all about adopting the religious relationship, right? She was the one all about encouraging that. She was the one who was, in fact, going out of her way to, to do the whole sham thing, right? You know, she was putting herself up as Reverend Mother. She felt that that was crucial for their survival, right? To guarantee, to solidify their position among the Fremen. When they were taken in and not killed initially, right? When they were not killed for their water, as was the law, um, but rather taken into the tribe. Remember, that had already happened. Um, Jameis was the only challenge to that. Once Paul killed Jameis, it was done, right? That was the trial which determined it. Um, so, so, you know, okay. But even in when she's doing the Reverend Mother thing, right? You know, when she's there and she's going to do the trial and she's like, I have to do it, right? And she, she doesn't even want to involve Paul, Remember, she keeps Paul out of it. She's like, I don't want to talk to Paul about it. I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna like spring this on him, right? Because I don't want him to be worried. Um, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, because I'm gonna go ahead and do it because I know it's necessary, right? This was all her idea. Remember that back when she was pushing him into this, when she was trying to work the religious angle at the beginning, following the whole missionaria protectiva script. Paul was thinking. We looked at that passage a couple weeks back. My mother is my enemy. Right? She is bringing on the jihad, though she doesn't know it. Jessica is now saying, gosh, there might be something headlong and dangerous in the religious relationship between Paul and the Fremen. Right? And Paul, of course, is like, yeah, he saw it a long time ago. Right? Um, he knew quite, uh, quite a while back that, uh, uh, that, that the Fremen, you know, the religious relationship with the Fremen um, could be dangerous. He's been anticipating the jihad for a long time. Uh, and seeing where this is likely to lead. So we see one thing, one, one conclusion we can see here is we're being reminded, of course, of Jessica's own lack of foresight. This is something we were seeing before. She has this sort of deep understanding. And remember, there's that, there's that sort of tone that the Bene Gesserits have, like we are the all-knowing ones, right? We see behind all things. We are the ones behind the stage pulling the strings and manipulating the puppets, right? We are the ones who see the truth behind everything, and we maintain these walls of, 
of deception in order to convince people that we're, you know to sort of pay attention, pay no attention to the woman behind the curtain, right? That's the whole Benny Gesserit approach. That's their whole attitude towards other people and the way that they believe themselves not exactly to be in charge of everything, but to be in control in some sense of things, right? Um, and we see that attitude in Jessica. We saw it back when we were looking at her, the, her conversation with the Shadat Mapes, even through her conversation with Paul, when we were also seeing into Paul's mind and seeing how much further um, he, he was seeing than she was, right? And how limited was her own vision and her own anticipation of what was going to come in the future. Again, that really came to a head in Paul's mind when he stated it in such very strong terms, my mother is my enemy. Right? He is working to try to prevent the jihad, and she's trying to bring it out. She doesn't realize that that's what she's doing. But again, it's just because of her own, the great limitation of her own vision. She has no idea where this is leading. She's thinking very, very short-sightedly of, let us preserve our own safety first, right? Let's, let's preserve our own lives by uh, prevailing upon the Fremen not to kill us. That's step one. Step two is let's ensure that the Fremen will take us in and protect us and keep us, and then step three, let's recruit the Fremen uh, to fight on Paul's side so that they can help him restore his, 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 his dukedom, right? His duchy is not... Is that really a word? Do they use the word duchy in Dune? I don't know they use fief. Anyway, whatever. Not important. Um, that's as far as her own thinking has gone. But even she is now becoming a little bit uneasy, Right? Um, this doesn't look like it's headed in a really fruitful direction. But again, I, this seems to me typical um, uh, and, and, and a really good reminder of the limitations of the Bene Gesserit. That in fact, I think we can expand from Jessica outwards and think about the whole Missionaria Protectiva as a whole. But the Missionaria Protectiva, when they planted these legends, had no idea where the legends would lead. Right? They weren't thinking about that. In fact, it seemed almost as if they not not much as they didn't care about that because obviously in a sense they didn't care I and mean, it's not like they actually were thinking about the best interest of the societies involved right I mean they didn't care about the destiny of the Fremen as a as a people group right when they planted these legends they were only thinking about planting these legends for the sake of being able to protect the safety and or the mission of whatever uh, 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 um, whatever uh, uh, Bene Gesserit happened to fall there. Dukedom. I thought that was the word, Kevin. Thank you. Um, anyhow, um, so again, they too had that narrow vision, which was narrow in almost exactly the same way that Jessica's was narrow. And although when we were talking about the Missionaria Protectiva, you know, when we were seeing the first evidence of it back in book one, you know, we're talking about, I mean, it's, it's, it's really subtle. It's, it, it's, it's extremely cunning. Um, and it seems very, very well done, but with very, very limited vision, right? With no real sense of what are the long-term consequences? Where really does this lead? And so we've seen Jessica in sort of small terms, um, that is in local terms, making exactly the same mistake. We see Jessica, unshockingly, thinking like a Bene Gesserit. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Philip, I love that, that, that simile. Philip Lord says, the Bene Gesserit uh, wanting the Kwisatz the, the, the Haderach is like the dog finally catching the car it's been chasing every day. Uh, yeah, <laughs> with exactly the same results, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that metaphor. That's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Um, 
Yeah, and we'll come back to that. We'll 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 look at uh, at uh, Paul Mwadib and and uh, and uh, Helen Mohayam. Um, by the way, if I were live tweeting this class, that is totally I would totally tweet that Philip. In fact, I'm like, I, 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 I'm thinking of doing so after class. Anyway, um, Paul, of course, is not blind to this, right? As we saw, Paul's been seeing this all along, and yet he's playing up to the whole, you know, Fremen religious thing too. Um, let's look at a, an example here. The man carried Paul's banner on its staff, the green and black banner with a water tube in the staff. That already was a legend in the land. Half pridefully, Paul thought, I cannot do the simplest thing without its becoming a legend. They will mark how I parted from Cheney, how I greet Stilgar, every move I make this day. Live or die, it is a legend. I must not die. Then it will be only legend and nothing to stop the jihad. This is, of course, right before he he, he rides uh, the Maker for the first time. Um, so again, we see Paul's awareness of it, but he's always seen this, right? Again, he's anticipating. He, he knows that he knows the. Notice his own admission here, his own recognition of the fact that his legendary status among the Fremen is leading to the jihad, right? If he is not left, if only his legend is, if he dies, his legend will continue. And that legend will lead to the jihad. If he's alive, his legend will also lead to the jihad, but maybe he can stop it, right? Then he will at least be able to stand against it. Maybe he will be able to do something, but obviously he won't when he's dead. The momentum of his legend will simply lead directly to the jihad. So we can see the sort of conflicted relationship he has with that, right? He's cultivating it, knowing that the legend of Muad'Dib um, is, 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 is leading to the jihad, but thinking, if I cultivate that legend, if I make myself, if I grant myself that kind of authority, that kind of religious authority, then I'll be able to prevent the jihad, right? That's the only way that I can prevent the jihad, is to do that. And remember the, I didn't, uh, I didn't quote it for you again, but we looked at this passage before. Remember the, 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 so one of the final thoughts of, um, of Liet Kynes, right? Right when he's about to die, you know, and uh, uh, he's, he's, you know, he and his, that sort of semi-conversation he's having with the ghost of his father, or with the, the apparition of his father there in the desert, um, uh, when they're talking about, you know, first his father is talking about cultivating religion among the Fremen, right? A, 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 a religious convictions about ecology mind, right? Um, that, you know, to, 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 to make their adherence to the ecological program a religious principle among them. That that's the way to succeed, right? That was the kinds plan, the, the, the plan of family kinds um, in cultivating Arrakis for their ecological, you know, to, in cultivating the Fremen to support their ecological vision of, uh, for Arrakis. But um, it's exactly the same thing that Paul is doing, right? So we see that Kynes too, you know, and Kynes Sr. Um, had also started this ball rolling, but that one of those, one of that final insights that Kynes has is this could all go terribly wrong, right, if they fall in the hands of a hero. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Tom Hillman says, the legend will be completely out of control if he dies, and it can take any form without him. He has to ride this tiger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Nancy Fosberg says, uh, Paul, uh, Paul is afflicted by this. There's a difference between the hero and his subjective identity. 
good. So he he's awareness of this of the you know the 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 hero capital H this image of him right that people see that people think um, that the gap between himself as legendary figure and his own subjective identity right um, yes Paul is extremely aware of this mostly or rather most of the time he is very aware of that distance. But notice how Paul is thinking this half pridefully, right? I cannot do the smallest thing, without, the simplest thing without it's becoming a legend. Does it go to Paul's head? Ooh, a little bit, right? He doesn't completely lose that sort of the affliction of that awareness, right? He doesn't lose that sense of the difference between his subjective identity uh, and his heroic identity, right? This sort of archetypal identity that has been projected upon him. But he doesn't always have it in the forefront of his mind either, right? Um, does Paul at times buy into his own hype? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we can see that happening here. Um, so it's, you know, this is, that's something, you know, sort of to watch. Um, Gerald asks, is preventing the jihad Paul's prescience or just a self-justification for doing what he wants to do? An excellent question, Gerald. Um, we have reason to question, in a sense, his conviction about uh, preventing the jihad. Um, remember when we were looking at his, you know, that, that important scene, that nexus scene of the fight with Janus, um, when he was sort of recognizing it, if he lives, it's done. Remember that when he emerges from the, the water um, holding place, right, in that cavern, after the fight with Janus? Um, and he comes out and he says that he, he just passed a nexus, right? Um, he just, something just, he was supposed to have done something and he didn't do it, right? Um, that Adora is already kind of, he's already kind of missed the boat, right? Um, the bus is already pulled out of the terminal there. Um, and Paul failed to get off it um, at that point. We'll come back to this too, um, a little bit. Um, but uh, uh, carrying on, um, we're reminded of this afresh, or rather we're given a fresh set of eyes to see this, that is Paul's relationship with his own heroic identity um, when he meets Gurney, or rather when Gurney recognizes who he is. Not recognizes that he's Paul, but first understand, but first hears one of the Fremen refer to him as Muad'Dib. And remember, Gurney's shocked, right? He's like, you're Muad'Dib? He's heard, of course, about Muad'Dib. He can't believe that Paul, you know, his friend, his pupil Paul, is this Muad'Dib character that he's been hearing about. Gurney turned away, feeling an oppressive sense of foreboding. Half his own crew dead on the sand, the others captive. He did not care about the new recruits, the suspicious ones, but among the others were good men, friends, people for whom he felt responsible. We'll decide what to do with him after the storm. That's what Paul had said, Muad'Dib had said. And Gurney recalled the stories told of Muad'Dib, the Lizan al-Gaib, how he had taken the skin of a Harkonnen officer to make his drumheads, how he was surrounded by death commandos, Fedaikin, who leapt into battle with their death chants on their lips. Him. Again, I think that this passage um, prompts us to look at the thing with fresh eyes, right? Again, we, we, we've been inside Paul's head all the way along, 
right? We've seen Paul's ideas about this, and we know, to some extent anyway, his rationalizations. We've seen Jessica's thinking, and now the reversal of her thinking, right? her increasing uh, discomfort with this thing that she helped to bring about and indeed quite actively orchestrated uh, in the early days. Um, but I think this is also, by the way, you know, Neil, coming back to a question you asked weeks ago, um, and I think this is, I think, an incomplete answer, but in my mind, one of the important things that, one of the important consequences of the gap in time between the end of book two and book three, I mean, of course, it enables some things to happen, Aaliyah to grow up a little bit more. Of course, as a baby, she could still theoretically have been talking the same way that she is, but she needed to be ambulatory, at least, uh, in order for her to do the things that she needs to do in the stories. Um, similarly, uh, it gave uh, Leto the second time to be born and all that. Um, but, um, but that, uh, um, you know, Neil, that kind of answer I have always found really unsatisfactory. Um, to s if if you ask a question, if if you ask a question of any story. Why, you know, what is the effect of this particular element of the story, or this particular technique in telling the story, or this particular, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, sort of narrative turn that the story takes? If your answer to that question is because that's what was required for the plot, you're not answering the question. I mean, that's like a completely circular answer to that question. Um, uh, I mean, it's it, it's like you know, if, if, if somebody asks you. You know why was it necessary to do this, and you answer because it was necessary, right? It's it's um, to say the story did this because it was necessary for the story. Again, that's just not an answer to me. I've always been dissatisfied um, in thinking about it in those terms. So instead, I like to think about what is the consequence of it? What effect does it have on us as readers? How would the story be different if that didn't happen? And yes, okay, some of those characters would be different and or non-existent, such as Leto the second, but. Um, um, but there's more, but 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 more than that. What impact does it have on us? Because it's not just Leto the second, right? Um, how do we look at other things differently? Um, um, and uh, good. Philip says the time passage also allows for a, a believability to Paul's eventual control over the Fremen. Yes, uh, to allow some time to elapse, and so therefore things to be sort of at a, at a different stage, right, with uh, with several of the plots and subplots. Um, yes, yes. Um, but I also think it provides us a different perspective, like we're getting here through Gurney. Um, Neil, that's exactly what I was thinking. Neil Altenstein says, one of the telling statements in this section was Gurney noting how the old Paul would care more for the people than the equipment. Yes, exactly. Paul has changed, right? And we might not have, Paul's been undergoing some serious changes between book one and book two, right? Between the end of book one and in book two, we've seen Paul's mind blow up, right? I mean, we've seen him enter into this whole new phase of existence and this whole new sense of awareness and everything else. You know, uh, so he's changed a great deal from the boy that we met in Caledon at the beginning of book one, right? Um, but by coming away and then coming back, um, that kind of shift, you know, exactly that kind of shift, um, Okay, so yeah, he's, he's still dealing with the same issues in his own mind. He's still trying to prevent the jihad, and we see all these other things. But um, how has his character changed? How has his outlook changed? And, you know, I, I agree that I find that a very telling thing. When Gurney is kind of appalled, right? Um, he's not acting like an Atreides, right? Paul's dad, Duke Leto, would never have done that. 
he would never have thought first of the equipment and secondarily of the people. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, Okay, I, yeah, and good, Philip uh, Menzies points out Paul is more Fremen now. Yes, exactly. He is more more Fremen than Atreides, you mean. Yes. Or, you know, he's sort of, he's he's not Paul Atreides. He's Paul Mwadid Atreides, right? Um, even think about the way in which, uh, later on, when he's talking to the Emperor, in which Paul keeps separating himself, right? He's like, the Duke Paul gave you his word, but Mwadid, not so, right? Um we can we can almost see I think that same um, a similar kind of thing in himself in his own understanding like this this sort of split in himself has developed um, not just the split um, Nancy that you were pointing to before between his understanding of himself and this you know archetypal uh, you know this this hero archetype that has been uh, you know sort of constructed around him um, but even to some extent he's almost internalized that right. Um, <laughs> that, uh, yeah, Nancy had said it earlier, so uh, Paul's pretty creepy, right? Uh, a little bit creepy now, certainly creepier than he was before. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Nancy, you're right. It is interesting that though Paul has changed a lot, Gurney's only changed a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a little bit different, um, but not as much. And again, I think that that's, you know, Gurney is a constant. He's not that different at the end only in his surroundings in some sense. Um, uh, and I mean that pretty broadly. I mean, of course, you know, the death of his duke and the destruction of most of the things he loved and all that, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's also that part of his surroundings. Um, but still, he, he is much more constant as a character. And again, I think really helps to emphasize when we think back, for instance, to the scene between Paul and Gurney that we got way back at the beginning in chapter two, I think it was, it would have been nice if it was numbered, um, then, uh, uh, you know, and, and so we look at Gurney and Paul and their relationship then and their conversation then, and then we see Gurney and Paul um, uh, relating to each other here. And that, I think, again, further emphasizes um, this, uh, this same thing. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, good. Tom Hillman says, he said that Janus taught him that you never killed someone without paying a price. Um, yeah, he is paying the price, right, Tom? Again, he's, he saw that. He recognized that. Um, yeah, good. Um, uh, one last point that I want to make about this. Um, him there at the end. He's just... This is Gurney's thinking, right? And he's saying him just because he's, he's trying to wrestle with this concept. Right? He's sort of reviewing all the things that he's heard about Muad'Dib and saying, him, him. Muad'Dib is him. Him, Paul. My Paul. My young master. Right now, Duke. Him. He's Muad'Dib. That's all he's doing. Right? But of course, it echoes what Jessica said before. Jessica being deeply uneasy about the fact that the Fremen now reverently refer to Paul as him, capital H. Right? with this religious awe. Gurney is not speaking himself with, re with religious awe. And yet, unknowingly, unknowing to him, we recognize it, he's echoing that. And that, I think, is something which, I think it's just an echo of that Fremen reverence 
there's dread in it uh, for Gurney here, but I think the, the the sort of the dramatic irony there, what the the fact that we hear this echo, I think, sort of points us uh, to things to come. Um, remember Paul wondering at the end, is he going to lo lose Gurney like he lost Stilgar? Right? Is Gurney too going to become a worshiper instead of a friend? Um, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Kevin uh, Morgan suggests that maybe stripping Paul of proper noun status and reducing him to him is maybe Gurney seeing Paul as he is at that moment. Yeah, maybe. Though, you know, Kevin, I can't help but think that that would just be Paul. Like that it wouldn't be stripping him of his proper name, but sort of coming back to his original proper name. Maybe, or, you know, maybe you're sort of thinking, trying to reconcile all those ideas, so let's not use any of them, right? I, I won't think of him as Paul. I won't think of him as of him is more people just think of him as him, you know, trying to in 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 the mess of trying to reconcile those two things, I'll try to sort of push past that. I can see what you mean, and that's a really interesting idea. Um, um, and I, I I'm willing to go there if we understand that as kind of still Gurney kind of struggling, right? I don't think this is necessarily an insight into Paul's character, but sort of an a, a desire um, to reconcile these things and to this extent, sort of a failure to recognize things, or to reconcile those things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, Nancy points out the alternative point of view. Nancy, I was thinking the same thing. By removing the proper name in favor of the pronoun, he becomes dehumanized, or at least less individualized. Um, yeah, conceivably. Conceivably. I mean, you could go either way with that. I mean, in the end, I, I kind of think that Kevin is more likely to be right, again, because of the one thing I can't imagine um, Gurney doing in this moment of reunion with Paul is dehumanization, right? Um, for him to think of Paul as something either less or more than human. Um, but I certainly can see him really, I mean, he's obviously really struggling with the tension between these conflicting ideas. His own associations with, uh, with not only with Paul personally, but with, you know, the the Atreides Duke in general, right, and the Atreides family in general, um, and what he knows of Mondi. Um Yeah, yeah. Um, right, yeah, Nancy says she, she doesn't think it's intentional on Gurney's part, but the reader gets there. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe, Nancy, I do like that in thinking of, so, so that we as readers are prompted to hear that Fremen hymn with yet a, this different, um, this uh, sort of added layer of significance, right? When the Fremen say it, it's religious awe, but we also might be led to wonder, what is the hymn, right? Um, what is the, the sort of the stripped down hymn behind all the names? Um, thinking about him as this dehumanized, depersonalized, and he himself as kind of depersonalized uh, himself there. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, I want to charge on because I do, I, I, I do want to, I want to make sure I at least put myself in a position to finish next week. That is my humble goal uh, for tonight. Um, okay, good. Well, um, I want to shift now, focusing a little bit more on Paul and focusing in particular on his his prescient visions and the progression of his purpose here, moving up through his um, uh, his full emergence as the Kwisatz Haderach um, here at the end of the book. Um, First, going back to the beginning, this is the very opening paragraph of book three. 
Paul Muad'Dib remembered that there had been a meal heavy with spice essence. He clung to this memory because it was an anchor point, and he could tell himself from this vantage that his immediate experience must be a dream. I am a theater of processes, he said, he told himself. I am a prey to the imperfect vision, to the race consciousness and its terrible purpose. Yet he could not escape the fear that he had somehow overrun himself, lost his position in time, so that past and future and present mingled without distinction. It was a kind of visual fatigue, and it came, he knew, from the constant necessity of holding the prescient future as a kind of memory that was in itself a thing intrinsically of the past. Okay, so what's going on here? We see Paul trying to stay on top of things, right? One thing that he emphasizes here is the question of, well, who's driving the bus, right? Um, is he subject to the prescient vision, or is the subject vision is the prescient vision subject to him, right? Um, he is trying to cling to this memory. He wants an anchor point. Um, notice the the um, the different metaphors here. He clung to this memory because it was an anchor point. Um, so the idea of this memory as the metaphor of an anchor, right, something that will keep him from being from floating and being wafted around. So we 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 see him as as if he were a ship, right, holding on to a line connected to an anchor, which roots him down, or at least prevents him from wandering too far away from that point. But then the metaphor shifts in the second half of that sentence, and he could tell himself from this vantage that his immediate experience must be a dream. So here, we, in the second time, we have him mounting up on top of a hill, right? Um, that memory is not only an anchor point, it's also like a hill from which he can see around him. And when he can see around him from that vantage, he can see that his immediate experience must be a dream. Okay. Um, both of these things show Paul's state, right? Paul is in danger of losing himself. He needs an anchor point to keep him from drifting. He needs a vantage point to enable him to be able to tell where he is, to keep him from getting lost, even from being able to, disting to distinguish what is dream and what is real memory. And we see him doing that. Did that really happen, or did I dream that? Right? He, he has a really hard time with that. Um, he calls himself a prey to the imperfect vision, um, to the race consciousness and its terrible purpose. Those aren't the same thing. Notice that sort of slip there? I am a prey to the imperfect vision, to the race... So we've got a parallel uh, uh, phrase there, right? He is a prey to the race consciousness and its terrible purpose. Okay, that makes sense, right? The race consciousness, which is driving towards the jihad, is... Uh, is see, man, he is he is its prey, Right? Remember, we had that infection imagery at the beginning, right? He was infected with terrible purpose. I mean, it was like a disease that was coming upon him. Now um, now it's like a predator, which is hunting him down, right? But for him to be a prey to the imperfect vision is not to say the same thing, right? That is, the imperfect vision is not the same as the race consciousness. In the second one... I am prey to the race consciousness and its terrible purpose. He's talking about this thing that is not him, right? Um, in the first one, I am a prey to the imperfect vision. 
is him talking about himself and his own abilities, or rather his own limitations, right? Because my vision is imperfect, I am made a prey, right? A prey, presumably, to the race consciousness and its terrible purpose. That is, Paul seems to have, and even that those metaphors of the anchor and the vantage point seem to suggest that he believes if only he can get on top of it, right? If only he can find, if only he can root himself properly, he can get ahead of this, right? He can be in control of this. I am a theater of processes. Stuff just happens within me. I am a prey to the race consciousness, right? He sees himself as this, you know, in that initial statement, I'm a theater of processes, he sees himself as a passive thing, right? Stuff, I, I, am, I am merely the conduit through which stuff comes, right, through which things happen, um, uh, which makes him a prey. So again, he, need, he wants that anchor. He needs a vantage point. But he can't escape the fear that he's lost his position in time. Um, he's trying to hold the prescient future as a kind of memory, right, to hang on to the future to know what it is and therefore be able to try to circumvent it, um, but it's not working and he can't keep it up. Um, okay, so this is his struggle we see at the beginning. Then we get, this is one of the things, there have been a bunch of things that I have noticed this time reading through and, and uh, reading through this um, with you guys that I didn't notice. Um, uh, in any of my pre previous readings of Dune, um, and this is one of those passages that I that I noticed for the first time here, um, and that is the metaphor contained within his sand riding expedition. Remember, he's he's going to be a sand rider, which is the moment at which he will officially be a Fremen, right? He will be accepted um, totally uh, among the Fremen once he is able to to finally do that thing, which basically defines a Fremen adult, right? Is to be able to uh, to 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 summon and ride. Um, a sandworm. And of course, there's, it's that legendary moment, right? He summons the sandworm that Muad'Dib summons for his first riding is like the hugest sandworm anyone's ever seen. Um, but did you notice this? Memory returned to him of his wrestling with his inner awareness during the night. He saw a strange parallel here. If he mastered the maker, his rule was strengthened. If he mastered the inward eye, this carried its own measure of command. But beyond them both lay the clouded area, the great unrest where all the universe seemed embroiled. The differences in the way he, ways he comprehended the universe haunted him. Accuracy matched with inaccuracy. He saw it in situ. Yet when it was born, when it came into the pressures of, the, of reality, the now had its own life and grew with its own subtle differences. Terrible purpose remained. Race consciousness remained. And over all loomed the jihad bloody and wild. Okay. See what he did there in that first part? And this is not, notice this is not just the narrator speaking figuratively. This is Paul himself making this comparison. He sees a parallel between mastering the maker, between riding the sandworm, and mastering the inward eye. Right? Um, so we have this gives Paul's writing of the worm it invests that 
with this additional symbolic overlay, right? And when he makes it, it seems a very interesting um, and, uh, and even a compelling kind of parallel, right? Maybe one we wouldn't have noticed uh, ourselves, indeed, I didn't notice it even after Paul paid it, um, but, uh, um, but nevertheless, this is, this is, it's, it's something that seems to work, right? The sandworms, um, notice that, you know, the sandworms in Fremen dialogue, dialect are spoken of, you know, in this sort of semi-divine way, right? Shai Halud. Um, but, um, you know, and they're the, you know, the greatest, the most incalculable, they're these, you know, they're, they're this, this uh, irresistible force, right? You know, they are the, they are the thing that all people on Arrakis fear, um, as Gurney Halleck points out, you know, the thing that all Arrakis fears and you, you treat it like a riding animal. That's Paul's metaphor, right? Paul's metaphor for his inward eye, for his prescient vision, right? Um, this race consciousness, this terrible purpose, this thing that's pressing in on him, which has opened these avenues of sight to him, um, this awareness that he didn't have before, it too is like the sandworm, right? And he can control it. He believes he can control it. That's what he's here for, right? That's what he's standing there in the sand uh, near his thumper in order to do, uh, to mount and control so improbably, right? Such a tiny, small creature to be able to control and guide the sandworm. Um, and that's what he's trying to do with his inner eye. Remember also that scene we looked at it briefly um, when Jessica and Paul make that dangerous crossing across the sand right before they meet Stilgar, and uh, um, and uh, and the worm rises up, right? And we get that description of them looking right into the gaping mouth of the worm, ringed with its you know future Chris knife teeth, and uh, uh, and. <clears throat> we were looking at the well imagery there, and it, it was like a well. Um, we were thinking of it in connection with the, the sort of the time well in which uh, uh, Paul found that he was. Um, anyway, I think we can see some of these parallels that worked a little bit like this um, earlier on. Um, but this thing, this awareness, this inward eye that Paul has, is this is a dangerous beast, Right? A terrible purpose. Overall, loom the jihad, bloody and wild. Um, but he, Paul, is going to try to tame it, right? And of course, look what happens. The worm slowed. It glided across the thumper, silencing it. Slowly, it began to roll up, up, bringing those irritant barbs as high as possible, away from the sand that threatened the soft interlapping of its ring segment. Paul found himself riding upright atop the worm. He felt exultant, like an emperor surveying his world. He suppressed a sudden urge to cavort there, to turn the worm, to show off his mastery of the creature. Stilgar has warned him of this sort of false elation that comes in, this inherent danger, the inherent danger of overconfidence, right? Of believing that just because you succeeded in getting up on top of the worm and can steer it, that you really have power over it, right? You don't. The Fremen don't have power over the sandworms, right? They don't actually control them. They can manipulate them, right? Um, they can lead them to go where they want them to go, but it's, it's not like they actually can call the sandworms to heal. It might almost look like that um, uh, to outsiders, but that's not really 
um, the way the relationship works. Um, if Paul thinks that he, you know, again, he's just thought of that parallel, right? If he's going to take this as a sign, right? Um, if he's going to kind of buy into his own legend, yes, I am the sand rider. I am the master of the inward eye. I can steer this where I wish. He may also be deluding himself. It might be exactly the kind of thing that Stilgar has warned him about. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, Paul chooses, after the confrontation between Gurney and Jessica, to take the final step. The decision had come to Paul while he faced the tension of danger to his mother. No line of the future he had ever seen carried that moment of peril from Gurney Hammock. The future, the gray cloud future. With it, I love the hyphenated phrases that we get, right? The times when, when Herbert gives us those hyphenated phrases, the way in which he's trying to sort of take and jam those together um, into one word. I can't help but think that Tolkien would have just made up a word um, that conveyed all that stuff put together. Um, but anyway, we, we get it mashed together, right? So we get this juxtaposition of ideas. It's not just the future, it's gray cloud future, right? With its feeling that the entire universe rolled toward a boiling nexus, hung around him like a phantom world. I must see it, he thought. His body had slowly acquired a certain spice tolerance that made prescient visions fewer and fewer, dimmer and dimmer. The solution appeared obvious to him. I will drown the maker. I will we will see now whether I'm the Kwisatz Haderach who can survive the test that the Reverend Mothers have survived. Why does Paul drink the water of life? One drop, anyway, of the water of life. Why? What motivates Paul to do it? What does he say? What motivates him? What do you think? And Nancy says, he wants to keep the visions, which is weird, because it's not like he liked them. Um, yeah, good. being blind, Philip says. He wants to see, says Tom. Yes, yes. Um, he wants clarity, Trevor uh, Brierley says. Yeah, he, he, I must see it, he thought. He must see the future. I don't want to strain the metaphor, but he's. this is him now really trying to ride the sandworm, right? This is Paul, you know, his decision to say, I'm going to drink the water of life, I'm going to drown the maker and drink the water of life, is him standing on the sand in front of the oncoming word. Let's put it to the test, right? This is my test. Can I do this? Um, can, I be, um, can I be in control of this? Um, um, He realizes here the full limitations of his vision. Notice what shakes him is that he had had no clue. He was blindsided by the Gurney Howick thing, right? Um, absolutely blindsided. No line of the future had ever carried that moment. He'd never seen it even as a possibility. At this moment, Paul realizes he finally knows 
what he doesn't know, right? We can see how he'd been overconfident before. We saw him at the beginning of, uh, of book three there struggling to maintain control, right? Struggling to, uh, to, to keep an anchor, to, to keep a vantage point from which to look around him. Now he suddenly realizes, oh my gosh, I was seeing even less than I thought. I thought I had a handle on this. Right? I thought I knew what the, prob what the possibilities were. Um, and then, you know, could do his super mentat thing and calculate the probabilities and everything and, and figure out what was best to do and how he can avoid the jihad, right? That's the plan, right? But now he realizes, man, there is stuff I just don't see at all. And he can't handle that. Um, what else? What else? Um... Yeah, Gerald says Paula's mentat seems to be dormant in favor of Paul the prescient. I agree, Gerald. I just referred to the mentat thing, but you're right that we don't get any direct evidence of that. We don't, um, we don't hear him talking and analyzing like a mentat in the same way that we did way back at the beginning and at the end of book one. There. I agree with you there. Um, notice the last sentence. We will see now whether I'm the Kwisatz Haderach who can survive the test that the Reverend Mothers have survived. The phrase used before seems to come in here again, half prideful, right? Um, there's a certain element of sacrifice. He knows it's dangerous. He knows he could die, but he's willing to take the chance in order to see, because if he can do this, if he can be the Kwisatz Haderach, if he can have perfect command of the future, if he can ride that sandworm, then he will be able, or at least it seems he believes he would be able to control the future, right? To be able to, to prevent the jihad. But uh, he knows it might, he might die. That's okay. He's willing to take that risk, right? That's kind of part of it, right? But it's not the whole story. Um, I there's also half pride. We will see now whether I'm the Kwisatz Haderach. Right? Um, maybe I am the legendary one. The one that the Bene Gesserits have been waiting for for 90 generations. Um, maybe I am. Maybe I am that hero. Right? Who can survive the test that the Reverend Mothers have survived? Is there a little element of what they can do, I can also do? Cheney sees that, right? That's what. That's how she interprets it. That's why it's the explanation she gives for why he did it. What others do, what he sees others do, he also wants to do. There's an element which says he doesn't want to be able, he doesn't want to have to concede anything to the Bene Gesserits, right? And possibly his mom? Is there a kind of competition in a sense, almost, with his mom here. Just, again, hinted at in that last sentence. Janie seems to hint at it even more strongly in her own assessment. Um, when he comes back from his trance, which does not seem very long to him, um, we have him forcing his awareness uh, into union with his mother. The rapport was not as tender, not as sharing, not as encompassing 
as it had been with Aaliyah and with the old Reverend Mother in the cavern. But it was a rapport, a sense-sharing of the entire being. It shook her, weakened her, and she cowered in her mind, fearful of him. Aloud, he said, You speak of a place where you cannot enter, this place which the Reverend Mother cannot face. Show it to me. She shook her head, terrified by the very thought. Show it to me, he commanded. No! But she could not escape him. Bludgeoned by the terrible force of him, she closed her eyes and focused inward, the direction that is dark. Another one of those phrases. Paul's consciousness flowed through her and around her and into the darkness. She glimpsed the place dimly before her mind blanked itself away from the terror. Without knowing why, her whole being trembled at what she had seen, a region where a wind blew and sparks glared, where rings of light expanded and contracted, where rows of tumescent white shapes flowed over and under and around the lights, driven by darkness and a wind out of nowhere. Okay. First, I want to start with the last paragraph, with a description of that place, that direction that is dark, which terrifies her even to think of. What do you make of the description of it? A region where a wind blew and sparks glared, where rings of light expanded and contracted, where rows of tumescent white shapes flowed over and under and around the lights, driven by darkness and a wind out of nowhere. What do you make of that? Kevin says it's a truly alien place. I think if we look back, it's how time is always depicted in Dune. Um, it is like time. I think. Yeah, Sharon says it sounds a lot like being in the middle of a tornado. Um, yeah, yeah, it does. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, it's certainly alien, right? It seems, again, in this description, which remembers from Jessica's point of view, we don't yet notice that. Well, pause on that for a second. I think I was taking that completely for granted. Notice we don't go into Paul's head here, right? We don't get this from Paul's point of view. We as readers aren't shown the, dark, the direction that is dark. We only see it from Jessica's vantage point here. And we've gone with Paul to some funny places, right? Mentally speaking, um, you know, from the moment of his, you know, sort of the awakening of this new awareness at the end of book one all the way through, um, uh, it's uh, you know we've 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 you know we've gotten the descriptions of you know himself poised in the middle of the diverging paths and and all these other things. Um, we don't get the direction that is dark from his point of view. We only get it from hers. Um, why is it terrible? Why does her whole being tremble at what she has seen? Certainly the imagery that we get here is of chaos, right? Um, it starts and ends with a blowing wind. A wind blows at the beginning and a wind out of nowhere at the end. Darkness, right, which we get all through, though we get this darkness punctuated by light. Not just flashes of light, but shapes, right? Rings of light and then tumescent white shapes, flow over and under and around the lights. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's, and these things are 
alien, foreign, totally uncomprehended by her, right? Um, it seems pretty clear that she herself couldn't really explain why this terrifies her. I mean, when you describe it, it doesn't sound that bad, right? Okay, so there were like rings of light expanding and contracting. I bet I could put up with that, right? It doesn't sound that scary, right? I mean, this is it, it, it's an interesting moment because, again, she herself, we're getting this from her point of view, and she doesn't know, she doesn't understand why it's terrifying, right? Um, and so it's unsurprising that that lack of understanding is sort of passed along to us, uh, in a sense. Um, um, Tom points out that, that the direction that is dark is full of light, or at least there are all these lights moving around in that chaotic darkness, right? Um, yeah, knowing sort of what that is, I mean, again, presumably it's not just random rings of light, right? There's something, it either, like, is the shape or the spirit of something, it is the projection of something is making these lights, like these vague shapes that she sees, it is something, and she can't get it, she can't, uh, she can't understand it. Um, yeah. Um, notice also Paul's his brutality to his mom here. I mean, uh, he is uh, he's very hard, um, and she's terrified of him. She is bludgeoned by the terrible force of him. Um, He's very rough. Again, we've seen Paul change, but we've seen Paul changing since the end of Book One. Um, Paul, of course, will explain to us how this works, what is in the direction that is dark. Paul said, There is in each of us an ancient force that takes and an ancient force that gives. A man finds a little difficulty in facing that place within himself where the taking force dwells, but it's almost impossible for him to see into the giving force without changing into something other than a man. For a woman, the situation is reversed. Jessica looked up, found Cheney was staring at her while listening to Paul. Do you understand me, mother? Paul asked. She could only nod. These things are so ancient within us, Paul said, that they're ground into each separate cell of our bodies. We're shaped by such forces. You can say to yourself, yes, I see how such a thing may be. But when you look inward and confront the raw force of your own life unshielded, you see your peril. You see that this could overwhelm you. The greatest peril to the giver is the force that takes. The greatest peril to the taker is the force that gives. It's easy to be overwhelmed. It's as easy to be overwhelmed by giving as by taking. And you, my son, Jessica asked, are you one who gives or one who takes? I'm at the fulcrum he said. I cannot give without taking, and I cannot take without... He never finishes that sentence, because this is the moment when he is overheard. Um, one thing that I would want to clarify, well, clarify, as if I fully understand it, um, the first in the first paragraph. On the one hand, we see this being connected to the memory of the body. Remember, we've heard that talked about, right? That you know, the Reverend Mother was talking about that. You know, being able to sort of remember back through the memory, you know, through your body's memory. Um, uh, 
okay, so it sort of makes even the business that about uh, it's being ground into each separate cell of our bodies, okay? We kind of put that together. Um, the giving and the taking. Um, there are two things in this passage that make me, that suggest to me that this giving and taking business is not purely gendered. It is associated with gender, right? Paul says, you know, the taking um, is uh, uh, easy for the man to handle, um, whereas the giving uh, is easy for a woman to handle. Um, but, again, I don't think even in that passage, um, back, to, back to that first paragraph, um, a man finds little difficulty facing that place within himself where the taking force dwells, but it's almost impossible for him to see into the giving force, now notice the end here, without changing into something other than a man. Changing into what, exactly? I don't think, for instance, the answer is into a woman, right? It's not like you're going to just be less of a man, right? You're going to be less masculine if uh, you're too much of a giver, right? Um, if you see into the giving force, it's going to sap your masculinity and you're going to be a girl, right? That's not what it means. Something other than a man I take to mean something other than human. For a woman, the situation is reversed. And again, I don't think it means for a woman, uh, if, uh, if she sees into the taking force, then she becomes something other than a woman, right? She becomes like a man. Um, and I don't see this as about simply defining genders and, you know, sort of crossing gender identities or anything like that. Um, he does suggest that, you know, the man's natural sort of inclination or, or sort of chief identity is on the taking force and the woman's on the giving force. Um, and, but if you try to cross the line, if you try to be in both places equally, if you try to see into the giving force as a man, then you become something other than a man. Um, and I believe the same thing would happen to a woman. You become something other than a man. You become something other than human. Um, that this kind of separation is um, in part what it means to be human. Um, remember the question about being human versus being an animal was where we started this book, right? Um, finding, defining what a real human is um, and what isn't, what doesn't really qualify as human. We return to it now at the end in this startling new way. It's not a question of human versus animal. It's a, it's a question of human versus something else. Remember that both Paul and Aaliyah have called themselves freaks. Why? Because they're something other than man. Um, we've kind of maybe suspected that Paul is something other than a man, right? That he's already kind of leaving humanity behind in a sense. Um, and this would seem to be confirmation of it. Um, um, Paul says he's at the fulcrum. Oh, I, was, I, I said that there are two things in this passage that lead me not in, in a really simple and black and white way um, to see the giving and the taking forces as just purely gendered. Um, the second is when Jessica asks him, are you one who gives or one who takes? Well, if it were purely black and white gendered, you'd think Paul's answer would be, Mom, dude, weren't you paying attention? 
I just said boys equal takers, girls equal givers. I'm a boy, and therefore I'm a taker. What kind of a dumb question is that, right? Um, uh, that's she's not that dumb, and it's not how he takes the question, right? Um, are you one who takes, gives, or one who takes? Um, it seems that there's like some 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 opening there, but she seems to also to be asking basically. Uh, so what are you now? And again, this is not a gender identity question, right? Um, <clears throat> this is a much more, a much bigger question than that. Um, are you something other than a man, right? Um, are you still human? Um, have Have you just like, are you one of those things? Are you either of those things? Um, okay, another way, and this I think is another really simplified way of thinking about her question here would be like, so, what is it like being Kwisatz Haderach, right? Does it mean you're like both at once, or that you can just like switch sides, or what? Like, how does it work? And that's a, that's a crazy oversimplification of what she's saying, but I think we, we can see her express just confusion. I don't get you, Paul. Where do you fit in to this schema, right? What's going on with you? Um, uh, Certainly, I don't see her primarily saying, do you identify yourself masculine or feminine right now, Paul? Um, but rather, what she's asking him, it seems to me, is kind of, are you human? Are you still human? Um, she, just from, like, again, the, the force of him, the, bru the, 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 the brutality of him and the forcefulness of him, the power that he has over her, seems to lead her to be asking with some trepidation, are you human, in fact? Um, his answer? What do you make of his answer? I am at the fulcrum, he said. I cannot give without taking, and I cannot take without... Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest he's going to finish that sentence with giving, right? Uh, I cannot take without giving. That's probably what he's going to say, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, um, yeah, Joseph Cano makes a great point. Joseph says, I'm surprised he's just, uh, he's just at the fulcrum, um, and not that he is the fulcrum. Yeah, Joseph, you kind of expect that's, that's how Paul would talk, right? It's like kind of how Paul has been talking. Um, he's not saying, I am the fulcrum, but I am the point upon which the entire thing pivots. He says he's at the fulcrum. Which also suggests he has the power to tip the thing one way or the other, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And good, and as Philip says, and that he can travel either way. Yes, yes, I agree. Um, I agree. Um, okay. Remember what Paul has said before. This is now the metaphor, really that he's giving us to understand what it means to be the Kwisatz Haderach, right? To be the Kwisatz Haderach is to be at the fulcrum between the giving and the taking. Okay. We have gotten two other metaphors for the Kwisatz Haderach earlier on in the book from Paul's lips. Do you remember them? Do you remember either of them? Two metaphors that Paul has given us about what the Kwisatz Haderach is. Anybody remember it? 
some obscure kind of question, I know. Big time bonus points if you remember. One was in the scene with the Reverend Mother at the beginning, when she was explaining what the Quetzalcoatlrock was to him. Exactly, Joseph, you got it. What what is the Quetzal's Hadarach, he asked? A human Gom Jabar? That's one. Second. Um good. Uh Philip and uh Philip Lord and, and uh and Matthew. Um Hershenroder were just saying uh we're just uh we're calling the same thing. Good, and Neil also. Um okay, a human Gom Jabar. So the Gom Jabar is one metaphor that we've got. Um in what way is the Quetzal's Hadarach like a human gom jabar. What is um, um, what is uh, what does that mean? What is the force of that metaphor? What is the gom jabar? What is its significance? The high-handed enemy, but it's not all that helpful necessarily. Maybe it is. Um, yes, it's. It's a weapon that destroys animals. It's a test to see if you're human. Good. Trevor and Philip and uh, 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 Tom are collaborating on these answers. Um, yeah. It's that which separates the human from the, the animal from the human. It's the test, right? To determine whether you're really human. Um, he is, you know, remember the, you know, that, the phrase, like, you know, face my gom jabar, right? Um, even Aaliyah's wonderful statement, sorry, grandfather, you have met the Atreides, Gom Jabbar. Um, the Baron has been tried and found wanting. Um, so the Kwisatz Haderach is like a Gom Jabbar. That metaphor, I think, comes back very potently in this final sequence here at the end of the book. Um, he is the test. He is determining who are humans and who are animals. Um, uh, remember even the language, you know, Gurney's language about Fade Ralpha and how, how strongly it emphasizes that, that he keeps calling Fade Ralpha, you know, he's, he's just a beast, he's a hark and an animal, right? Um, Anyway, I'll think about this more when we get to the later scene. The other one. At uh, the end of book one, during that time of his awakening, there's that moment when Jessica said, you know, she's listening to Paul and he's like being weird. You know, he's doing his like, Paul has left the building sort of statements, right? And Jessica says to her, she, she thinks, like, you know, OMG, Paul is the Kwisatz Haderach, right? He's, this, he's, he's totally Kwisatz Haderaching right now, right? Remember that? Remember what happens? Paul responds to her thought. What does he say? Anybody remember this? Good, yeah. Phil Hobie says, you're thinking on the Kwisatz Haderach. Remember that moment when Baron Harkonnen looks like he's responding to Fader Alpha's thought, Right? Um, that was cunning, but he wasn't actually reading his thought, right? Um, he just happened to be, he had assessed what Fade Ralpha thought of him in general and happened to think, to say it 
the same time that we knew that Faberother was actually thinking it. Paul deduces it the same thing, the same way, right? But he can read exactly from you know her look and everything what's going on in her head, right? You're thinking on the quiz that's hot rock. Um, and he says, "No, I'm not the Kwisatz Haderach. I'm something else." What does he say he is? Remember? What does he associate? He calls himself a freak, but that's not what he says there. He does say I'm a freak. But when he's saying, "No, no, Kwisatz Haderach doesn't really do justice to me." I am, I remember, I am a seed, he says. I'm something else altogether. I am a seed, he says. Seed. Now, he is the Quetzal Tadarak, right? So, I mean, if he's really disclaiming that, if he's really saying, no, 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 me, Quetzal Tadarak, no, 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 no. He's not doing that, obviously, right? Even at the time, he's not doing that. So why does he deny being uh, the Kwisatz Haderach? Well, I think it's because of the implications of what... Remember, what does Jessica immediately think? What does Jessica... When she thinks, oh my gosh, she's a Kwisatz Haderach, what does she immediately think? Do you remember where her mind goes right away? What does she think? Remember how she's like, oh, God, I've got, somehow, I've got to send word out to the schools, right? I've got to get... Exactly, Tom. I've... I've, I've I've got to. I've got to send a wire to the other Bene Gesserits, right? Um, we've, this. This must be known. She's going to report back to the Bene Gesserits, right? Hooray! The Bene Gesserit plan has come to fulfillment, and it's it's my. I want to brag her. Okay, I do want to brag. It's my son, right? I totally thought I had the Kwisatz Haderach thing in the bag. That's what you guys thought. I was horrible for not having a girl, and I was supposed to have a girl, but I totally knew. Who's laughing now, right? Who's got egg in their faces now? Because I totally. Yeah, I totally bore the Kwisatz Haderach over there. But anyway, so we've got all this we've got all this stuff, right? When he says, no, 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 I'm not the Kwisatz Haderach, I think that what he's doing there is saying, um, stop with the school thing, right? Stop with the, the Bene Gesserit. I'm not your Bene Gesserit thing, right? I'm not that thing that the Bene Gesserits have been looking I mean, okay, like I kind of am that thing. But that thing isn't what they thought it was, right? I am something else entirely. I am a seed. Um... Philip Lord points out um, the Gom Jabbar, of course, is associated with death. The seed is associated with life. It's a wonderful observation, uh, 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 Philip. Um, remember, the Gom Jabbar uh, is, uh, is sort of doubly associated with death, right? Um, how do you tell the difference between a human and an animal? The animal is the one who thinks only of itself and would gnaw off its own limb in order to escape from a trap in its desperate attempt to survive. The human, how can you tell it's a human? Because it lies in wait and commits murder instead of gnawing off its own limb, right? That's how you tell it's human. Um, that it's thinking of removing a threat to its species rather than just of its own uh, selfhood. So we see... The Gom Jabbar, again, it, it, it kills animals, right? Um, but it defines humanity by submitting potentially to your own death and, you know, like not escaping the trap, but also killing 
Um, okay. So what happens? What happens after Paul declares himself the Kretsatz Haderach and puts the final plan into action here? Um, he begins to see the consequences of the road that he's taken, right? Um, and we can see some of those consequences. Um, first, a passage I've already alluded to. In that instant, Paul saw how Stilgar had been transformed from the Fremen Naib to a creature of the Lizan al-Gaib, a receptacle for awe and obedience. It was a lessening of the man, and Paul felt the ghost wind of the jihad in it. I have seen a friend become a worshipper, he thought. Um, the ghost wind of the jihad I really like. Um, this is what the jihad is made of, right? Why is the jihad going to be so terrible? Because uh, as the fanatic followers, the fanatic worshippers and followers of Muad'Dib, the Fremen, who are already this marvelous fighting force, are going to dehumanize themselves, right? Like Stilgar has transformed from, you know, the wise leader of the Fremen into a creature of the Lizan al-Gai, into a mere receptacle for awe and obedience. If this has happened to Stilgar, what's going to be happening to all the other Fremen, right? They're going to be dehumanized. Um, I have seen a friend become a worshipper, he thought. In a rush of loneliness, Paul glanced around the room, noting how proper and on review his guards had become in his presence. He sensed the subtle, prideful competition among them, each hoping for notice from Muad'Dib. Muad'Dib, from whom all blessings flow, he thought, and it was the bitterest thought of his life. They sense that I must take the throne, he thought, but they cannot know I do it to prevent the jihad. He sees the consequence, right? He sees what's happening. Remember, where you know where we started out. Um, Jessica's worried about where this trajectory is headed with the whole religious reverence of Paul, right? Paul sees it too. Sees himself becoming a legend. Sees where this is. You know, sees how this is the very stuff of the jihad, right? This is the, almost the necessary vehicle for the jihad, and yet. It's also the only mechanism through which he believes he can prevent the jihad, right? So, but he sees this, the bitterness of this. Now, instead of half pridefully thinking, even the smallest thing I do becomes a legend today, right? Like we saw him do the day he was doing his Sandrider test. Um, now, his bitterness is complete. Muad'Dim, from whom all blessings flow. Speaking of himself self-consciously and self-mockingly, as God, right? Speaking of himself as a God and it's the bitterest thought of his life. But that last sentence, he seems to hold on to that, right? But they cannot know I do it to prevent the jihad. But, but, but it's not like they think, right? He hasn't bought into the hype. He doesn't believe it. And he's not just giving into the jihad or anything. It's not that he's like okay with this or anything. Um, it, he's totally, it's totally a means to an end, right? Absolutely a means to an end, this whole reverence thing, right? I'll carry on loving them, think of me this way, and it's fine, but it's not fine. And he knows 
it's not fun. Sharon, I agree, he's not prideful here at all. I agree. Well, he's not prideful in the sense of taking pleasure in the way that they revere him. But that last sentence, I think, still is a little prideful. Prideful in the sense of, he st we still see him saying, essentially, I got this. I got this. Um, my cart is not out of control, right? Politics and religion in the same cart. No, we're good. We're good. I'm totally driving this cart, right? Um, uh, not a problem. Um, good. Kevin Morgan points uh, uh, no Paul Muad'Dib here either, right? Just Muad'Dib. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but speaking of Paul's bitterness, again, look at how he's changed. The men tell strange stories of you, Paul. This is Jessica speaking. They say you've all the powers of the legend. Nothing can be hidden from you, that you see where others cannot see. A Bene Gesserit should ask about legends, he asked. I've had a hand in whatever you are, she admitted. But you mustn't expect me to... How would you like to live billions upon billions of lives, Paul asked. There's a fabric of legends for you. Think of all those experiences, the wisdom they bring. But wisdom tempers love, doesn't it? And it puts a new shape on hate. How can you tell what's ruthless unless you've plumbed the depths of both cruelty and kindness? You should fear me, mother. I am the Kwisatz Haderach. Jessica tried to swallow in a dry throat. Presently, she said, Once you denied to me that you were the Kwisatz Haderach. Paul shook his head. I can deny nothing anymore. She is saying, cautioning him here, right? She seems to suggest that I, you're losing yourself here, Paul. It's not just Gurney Hallett pointing out, uh, dude, that was totally non-Atreides right there, right? Um, he doesn't go so far as to say, your father would be ashamed of you, but he comes as close, right? It's not just that. Here's Jessica saying, look around you, son. You see what's happening? Uh, 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 And he says, yeah, yeah, um, I am the fabric of legends. And he talks about all of the wisdom he has gained, right? They speak of the wisdom of Muad'Dib, oh yeah, yeah, mm -hmm, I'm wise. I've lived billions upon billions of lives. Um, but there seems to me to be self-revulsion you know, self of himself self-loathing in the way that Paul talks about things here. How can you tell what's ruthless unless you've plumbed the depths of both cruelty and kindness? Having had all of these billions upon billions of lives forced upon him, remember he was having those experiences of men, he was partaking of many people's experiences even before he took the waters of life. Right? That was part of his experience in that original awakening he had at the end of book one. Now that he's done the water of life thing, that's even more, right? Nancy, you're right. Um, it shows even more loathing of her, um, Nancy says. Um, or at least he takes it out on her pretty frequently. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Nancy, do you think that here we see a little bit of something coming to the surface that he was kind of hiding from himself? My mother is my enemy, right? Because she's totally causing the jihad, right? And I, you know, I am a moral person. I don't want the jihad to happen because that's bad, right? And I'm not a bad person. I'm not the kind of person who's okay with the slaughter of, like, billions of people. If I know that things that I do could lead to the slaughter of billions of people, because I'm a, you know, a good person, I'm going to stop that. I'm not going to have it, right? It must not be, I'm going to say. And here's mom, again and again, she, you know, in her ignorance, pushing us towards that cliff, right? I'm the good guy. I'm the, so my mother is my enemy, right, morally speaking. But Nancy, doesn't it sound more personally bitter here? More like what came out initially, back at the end of book one. What have you done to me? You did this to me. Um, and yeah, Nancy says he's making it her fault in order to minimize his own role. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you should fear me. I am the Quisant's Haderach. I can deny nothing anymore. Hmm, nothing, Paul? Not the jihad? Anymore? No, not so much. Um, a bigger thing, though. What is the relationship between Paul and the race consciousness? Originally, he felt infected by the terrible purpose. Remember, he's on several occasions identified the race consciousness with the terrible purpose, right? And he felt himself as being infected by the terrible purpose. It was something that was coming into him. It was an invader. It was an alien thing insinuating itself in him. Um, and he was resistant to it. And it kind of comes upon him and does these things to him and opens his awareness at the end of book one. It is his opponent. Not necessarily his enemy, but his opponent in any case. right? The race consciousness wants the jihad. He doesn't want the jihad. So there's Paul at loggerheads with the race consciousness. But you see sort of the implication of what he does here, of what he says? He's lived billions upon billions of lives. He's had the experience of all of these people. He's plumbed the depths of cruelty and of kindness. He is the Kwisatz Haderach. He is the race consciousness, right? If the race has an awareness, it's in Paul, right? The awareness that he has is the awareness of his entire race. That's what he's bitter about here, right? It's his terrible purpose. The terrible purpose isn't outside him. He is. It is his purpose. The jihad is his purpose. The race consciousness is him, is manifested in him. Um, I think I'm going to stop there. Uh, the two things I wanted to go on and do next is look at Paul's sort of final assessment of the Bene Gesserits and Paul's final assessment of the Guild. 
but I think I'm going to um, take the risk of putting those off until next time, uh, the risk of having enough time to actually talk about the end of this book next time. But <clears throat> we'll, uh, we'll see what we do. We should be okay. I'm sure we'll be fine. Um, so we, we will do that. Um, we will look at sort of where Paul stands at the end, and I want to be thinking about the end. And of course, we'll talk about Count Fenric as well, of course. Um, and Princess Irulan, Nancy. Yes, we get Princess Irulan, and she gets two lines, right? She actually speaks within the narrative. Um, so we'll get Princess Irulan, we'll get Count Fenring, um, though sadly not uh, not his wife. We'll get Thufir Hawat. I want to be thinking about Thufir Hawat, yes, um, as well as the Bene Gesserits in the Guild um, and uh, where, Paul, um, where Paul is at the end. And, you know, then I want to I wanna finish up by asking the question... How does the story end? Where are we at the end of this story? Um, is this, uh, you know, what, what what kind of story is this in the end? Um, so we'll uh, talk about that stuff next time. Thanks very much, everybody, and I look forward to finishing up doing, doing Watership Down soon. I'm so excited. Um, anyway, thanks, everybody. Good night. See you guys next week. <laughs>